You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, over 50 years ago, there was a Presbyterian minister by the name of Donald Barnhouse. He was a pastor at the famous and still famous uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And famously during one sermon that actually was broadcast to uh, the entire nation, he imagined a scenario. And the scenario he imagined was, what would it look like if Satan took control of a city? What would it look like if Satan took control of, say, Philadelphia? Now, I know we could probably definitely argue that Satan has already taken control of Philadelphia, especially their, their sports teams. If you're from Philly in here, you can just, the door's over there. But uh, Barnhouse said this, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banned, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday, and Christ would never be preached. Now, the point isn't that pornography is good or that being mean and looking down at the street like we do here in D.C. is a good thing. His point is that morality, apart from real saving faith in Jesus, is ultimately purposeless. It ultimately isn't satisfying. It ultimately isn't eternally benefit. Uh, That is, just being moral isn't the golden ticket, we might say. Uh, Said another way very intensely by the famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon, morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus to keep you out of hell. What Barnhouse is saying is that one way to totally blind people to God is to kind of put them in a Pleasantville. In Pleasantville, there's no rain. Uh, Everybody makes every hoop. The fire department only exists to rescue cats in trees. Uh, Everybody seems to be happy, and yet nobody knows what life's all about. Nobody knows who they really are. In his scenario, the gospel is veiled, we might say. Religion is booming, and yet Jesus isn't personal. He's not real in any way, and therefore it's game over. And in this passage this morning, we're going to see this same scenario played out, except we'll see it concentrated in a young, sharp community leader who's about to have a life-changing conversation with Jesus. And sadly, what we're going to find is that it's game over for this rich young ruler, that it's a stay in Philadelphia situation for this young man. He goes away very sad from the conversation, the text will tell us. Now, since we normally do a big idea here at King's Church every Sunday, I'm going to stick with that format. And so the big idea is this. It's a little bit sappy. It's a little bit evangelical. And it's this. God wants all of us. 
He wants all of us. He wants our hearts. That is, Jesus wants our hearts. He is a jealous God, we'll find in the book of Exodus as we start that book here in just a few weeks. God himself wants all of us, not just our minds, uh, not just our bodies, but he wants our hearts. Now, my outline is also going to be up on the screen, and it's pretty straightforward this morning. Number one, the conversation. We'll see that in these verses that Camille just read. And then we'll look at what went wrong. See, particularly three reasons as to what went wrong. And I hope that these serve as a bit of a warning for us, uh, a, a bit of an admonition for us this morning as to how not to fall into the same trap as this rich young ruler. So let's look at point one, the conversation, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Matthew's gospel adds, and what do I still lack? So here's this guy, and we find out from the other kind of parallel accounts in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel that he's a pretty young guy, probably in his 20s. We also discover that he is morally rich. This is a really good guy. Jesus sums up some of the Ten Commandments, and this guy says, bingo, I do that. That's the kind of life I live. He's characterized by integrity. He's characterized by being transparent by hard work, he's faithful, he's sexually pure, he's a loving son, he's honest, he's a good citizen. So he's young, he's morally rich, but he's also financially wealthy. The text will tell us he's got a lot of stuff, he's influential, he's got a lot of pull. Now back then, just like today, there was this kind of feeling that moral excellence goes with financial prosperity. The thought goes, if you're a pretty good person, that something in the universe, whether that's God or karma, will reward you with a financially prosperous life. And if you're a financially prosperous person, well, then you must probably be a pretty good person. If you lived a good life, you've honored the creator, you've been a pretty good person. It's a feeling that a lot of people had back then, and it's a feeling that, if we're honest, a lot of us have still today. And so people would have looked at this guy and they would have said, yeah, he's a really good guy. Uh, the universe or karma or God or whatever it is has paid him back. He's someone we would want our kids to be like. He was, he's someone we would want to be like. Now, the icing on the cake is not only is he morally excellent, is he financially wealthy, is he young, but he's also uh, pretty humble. He's coming to Jesus and he's, he's searching he knows that he lacks something. He's looking for deeper meaning in life. He's, he's essentially saying, yeah, I have all of these things, but I don't have it all together. So he's not smug at first. He's searching. Now, to be honest, in the church world, uh, especially at a newer church plant, this would seem to be the ideal person who walks into a church service. He's respected in the community. He has great character. 
He's got resources to keep the lights on, and he's humble. He's looking to learn. We would essentially say, yes, let's get coffee. Uh, let's, let's get to know each other. And to any religious leader you can imagine out there, this would seem to be the ideal person you would want. He has a footing in the community. He has morally excellent character. He has resources to fund your religious movement. And he's seeking answers. So this guy is the total package. He is the ideal candidate. And yet what we're going to find this morning is that Jesus is going to send him packing. He's about to tell him he's really, 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 really far from the kingdom of God. He's on the wrong path. He's missing it. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. So this ideal person walks up to Jesus and he goes away really, really sad. He goes away grieved. Something, and at its core it's not money, was keeping this guy's life from experiencing ultimate peace, ultimate joy, ultimate salvation, relationship with God. And Jesus specifically zeroes in on that, and like a laser to his heart, he tries to melt that something away so this, that this guy can finally have the gift. And what we see is he fails the test. He goes home sad. He's not able to get it. The others who are there kind of throw their hands up. They're in shock. This is the ideal guy, and if Jesus just sent him packing... If Jesus has told him he's outside the kingdom of God, if he's totally on the wrong path, they're essentially saying, well, then who can, be, who can get in? Who can be saved? And Jesus responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, here in Washington, we know that this is the place where student body presidents come to die, or in my case... <laughs> vice presidents, and die as in you get here and you realize everybody is like you. Uh, you. You're surrounded by copies of yourself, and your pride gets deflated pretty quickly. This place is filled with ambitious, young, and smart leaders from all over the country. And many are even reaching out to God, and they're saying, what do I lack? What do I need to do? This might be some of us this morning. There's a lot of profile matching here with this rich young ruler. And not only that, this place is filled with a lot of just ordinary good people. Maybe not super ambitious, but many are reaching out to God as well and saying, what do I lack? What do I need to do? And this might be some of us this morning as well. There's some profile matching here with the rich young ruler. The reality is, is that this encounter teaches us that there is a real danger that we too can be sent home packing by Jesus. There's a real danger that in our encounter with God, 
it will result in us walking away very sad like this rich young ruler because we can't get it. We fail the test. We can't get the gift. We can't obtain life's greatest joy, life's most ultimate peace, a relationship with God. Why? Because there's something keeping us from that, which really leads us to point two. What went wrong? And so with my remaining time, I want to just point out three observations this morning briefly as to what went wrong here so we can be sure that we're not missing it. So we can be sure that we're not staying in Barnhouse's Philadelphia. So number one, what went wrong? Number one, he met the real Jesus. The passage begins with this rich young ruler coming up to Jesus and calling him good teacher. So he's close to understanding who Jesus really is. But what happens next is that he gets to have a conversation with Jesus himself. And in that conversation, Jesus' own words begin to reveal who he really is, and that is the Lord of it all. And notice as the truth is unveiled, this rich young ruler becomes very disturbed. He becomes very offended. He's not able to process it. The reason is because he was encountering the real Jesus. He was hearing the real message of Jesus, and that offended him. Now, the point for us this morning is the same. When we talk to the real Jesus, when we hear the real message of Jesus, it's always a bit disturbing. It shocks us. It offends us. It sometimes contradicts us, and it's often hard to process. But that's how it's always been. And this is ultimately how we grow as believers. When we meet the real Jesus, we find two things. He demands more than we ever thought, which is disturbing. And yet he offers more than we ever dreamed of, which is amazing. If you're a believer, one of the ways that you can know you've grown over the last year is if you've continued to experience this. If you realize that God was demanding more of you than you ever thought, but at the same time, you realized he's blessing you and he's coming through in ways that you never imagined. You've been dealing with the real Jesus. You've been experiencing the real call to discipleship. And perhaps this morning, if you're exploring the Christian faith, which I know is many of you, one of the ways you can know you're dealing with the real Jesus One of the ways you can know you're dealing with the real message of Christianity and not just sensationalism and fluff is that when you meet the real Jesus, when you hear the real message of Jesus, you won't be left in indifference. It will be so offensive that you'll either walk away or that you'll bow down and worship. In other words, when you hear him, when you see the real Jesus, Christianity can't remain irrelevant. It can't just be boring or soothing. The truth is so disturbing at times that it shakes us out of our indifference towards a response. Number two, another observation of perhaps what went wrong was that his assumptions were wrong. His assumptions were wrong, particularly about how approaching God functions. 
So when this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, he's searching for something. He seems to be very religious, but he's not certain about his relationship with God. He wants certainty that he has eternal life. He wants certainty that he has this inner peace and real forgiveness in terms of his relationship with God. But notice how he approaches this question. He says, what do I still lack? And what must I do to inherit eternal life? He essentially approaches the question of certainty with God like most people do today. He comes with two assumptions. And these two assumptions, Jesus essentially is going to blow up. The first is, what do I need to add to my life to make it right? What do I need to add to my life to make it right? What do I still lack, he says. And assumption number one, it's the person who says, okay, I've had a pretty good life. I'm doing pretty good, but I just need to add something to make sure I'm good. And to assumption number one, Jesus totally demolishes it. He says Christianity is not like that. It's not something you just add to your life. It's something that blows up your life to make room for something brand new. It's a whole different approach. Later on in the Bible, he'll talk to a rich old man, and he'll say, you need to be born again, born from above. Jesus responds to this young, rich ruler, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says it's not about adding. It's about a total transformation in his life. Now for us, this is a great reminder that Jesus is not just in addition to our lives. He is our life. He's not 12 rules for life. He's not Monday.com. He's not a new app on our phones. He's not an inspirational message. For the Christian who has been gripped by the love of Christ, he is our life. Uh, To know him is to say with the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not an addition. It's a transformation. Number two, the second assumption that this guy kind of makes regarding this this certainty with God, uh, this certainty of forgiveness with God, a relationship with God, is he says, what do I need to do to make things certain with God? What do I need to do? What must I do to inherit eternal life. And assumption number two, it's the person who says, I'm a pretty good person. What other good things do I need to do in order to make sure I have peace with God? And to assumption two, you can imagine Jesus totally crushes it as well. He says Christianity doesn't start there at all. Jesus lists the Ten Commandments, and the guy says he's done them all, He's loved God with his heart, soul, and strength and mind. He's loved his neighbor as himself. And so Jesus brilliantly shows him he is absolutely full of it. He takes that first commandment, which is love God with all your heart, obey God with all your heart, 
and says, as the Lord of everything, he should just go sell everything he has and follow him. And surprise, surprise, this young guy just can't do it. In that moment, he can't obey the first commandment. It's a shocking demand by Jesus, but it's really, really smart. Jesus is basically saying to him that his problem isn't that he needs a little bit more goodness. His problem is that he won't admit deep down inside that he's not so good, that he needs a savior. Jesus is trying to show him his starting point is flawed. The truth is that the real starting point is that he's not righteous. He needs a savior. A little bit more good, according to his definition of goodness, isn't going to cut it. He needs God's goodness. And this morning, the greatest news on earth is that in the gospel, we can obtain the goodness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God can attribute, he can give us his goodness, the very righteousness of God given to us through faith in Jesus Christ, so much so that Jesus' death becomes our death, that his life becomes our life, that his obedience is given to us, that God looks at us as if we were Christ himself through faith. Number three, and finally, another observation we see this morning where he went wrong was that his heart was not ready. His heart was not ready. When this young, rich ruler comes to Jesus, he's looking for enlightenment. He's looking for wisdom. He's approaching the question of certainty with God and salvation very academically. He's maybe thinking, what knowledge am I missing? What spiritual practice do I need to do more of? I'm missing something. What doctrine do I need to understand better? But Jesus isn't playing that game. He wants all of him. He wants his heart. And the Gospel of Mark adds this little detail to the account. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That means that even though this rich young guy is approaching it all very academically, Jesus gets very personal, and he loves him. He reads him like a book. He can see through all the smoke, all the pretenses, and he loves him so much that he directly addresses something deep inside of him. That something was keeping this guy from life's greatest joy, life's greatest peace from life's greatest gift in a relationship with God. And Jesus specifically zeroes in on that like a laser to his heart. He tries to melt that something away so that this guy can finally have this gift. Now, that something at its core isn't money. It's much deeper than money. That something is a power struggle. And that power struggle exists in every human being still to this day. It's a power struggle between who or what is on the throne of our hearts. Who or what sits in the commanding chair of our hearts. Who or what provides us with ultimate security, ultimate peace. Who or what provides us with our source of identity, our comfort, our stability, our confidence, our joy. 
our salvation, our rescue from our circumstances. Who or what is on the throne of our hearts? For the rich young ruler, I'm sure he said it was God on the throne of his heart. But at his core, deep in his heart, he lived with the conviction that his wealth provided him with security and confidence and peace and joy. And in this passage, Jesus sees that monster in his heart. He sees that this is the thing that ultimately keeps him from truly knowing God, relying on God, trusting in God. And so he loves him. And like you would with a major alcoholic or a drug addict, Jesus gives a drastic solution to try to save him, to try to slay the monster on his heart. But we know he just couldn't. The text says he goes home grieving. Now, this probably doesn't mean that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to sell everything you have. Uh, There's nowhere else in the Bible anywhere that says to follow Christ means you have to go into poverty. But this does speak loudly to the fact that God wants all of us. He wants us to trust him that he's in control, that he knows what he's doing. He wants us to surrender the dreams we have that we think will give us a life of power and joy without God at the center. He wants us to find in him our ultimate security, our ultimate identity, our ultimate future. He knows our monsters, and he wants us to trust him this morning that he'll take care of us. He may demand more than you ever thought, but he promises to bless you with more than you can ever imagine. He's not just an addition. He's life, and he's a savior. And he wants us to treasure that which is in heaven, where moth and rust can't corrupt, where thieves can't steal. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.